The show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're looking at John Hughes' 1985 coming-of-age movie, The Breakfast Club. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the ending of the film. We will ruin it for you. So if you haven't already seen The Breakfast Club, go away and watch it now. Then, come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right. On with the show. All right, people, we're going to try something a little different today. Alongside Sixteen Candles and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, The Breakfast Club formed part of writer-director John Hughes's unofficial teen trilogy. Often described as the quintessential 80s movie, the film centres around five teenagers enduring a Saturday in detention in the library of an otherwise deserted school. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why you're here. Ponder the error of your ways. Set almost exclusively in one room, with pages of dialogue and very little action, the movie was an unlikely hit with teen audiences. But Hughes' screenplay, the first draft of which he wrote in just a single weekend, tapped into the psyche of the American teenager, perhaps more effectively than any film before it. Eat. My. Shorts. The making of the movie was equally unconventional, with Hughes rehearsing his cast intensively for three weeks, allowing the actors to bond before shooting the whole movie over just a couple of days in chronological order. Filmed on location at a mothballed high school in Illinois, Hughes gave his cast freedom to improvise, often shooting five or six takes. Chicks, can I hold this smoke? That's what it is. But pivotal to its success was the casting, in particular its five young stars. First to be cast with 17-year-olds Anthony Michael Hall as science nerd Brian. Well, you know the school comes equipped with fire exits at either end of the library. And Molly Ringwald as a spoiled princess Claire. Do you know how popular I am? Both fresh from working with Hughes on 16 Candles. War game star Ali Sheedy took the role of the reclusive Alison. While Emilio Estevez was originally cast as the rebellious John Bender before Hughes switched him to playing the jock Andrew Clark. I taped Larry Lester's buns together. The role of Bender eventually went to Judd Nelson, who beat off competition from John Cusack and Nicolas Cage. The 26-year-old Nelson allegedly threw himself a little too enthusiastically into the role, carrying a switchblade on set and almost being fired for bullying Molly Ringwald. Being bad feels pretty good. The film was a huge commercial success on its release in 1985, grossing $50 million on its modest $1 million budget and cementing Hughes' growing reputation as the king of teen movies. In 2014, Empire Magazine ranked it 38th on their 500 greatest movies of all time list, but others have been less impressed, with TV Guide saying it too often resorts to obvious cliches, stereotypes and easy answers, and throws in the near-obligatory rock video as well. So, over 30 years on from its release, is The Breakfast Club simply a curious 1980s time capsule, or, if you look beyond its dated hairdos and bombastic soundtrack, are its themes still relevant today? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. Later in the show, we'll be looking at movie makeovers, and whilst not wishing to give away too much about how at least one member of the spoiler team feels about The Breakfast Club, we'll also be taking a look at movies with disappointing endings. But first, uh, here, 
the home of spoiler, the Siren FM studios. I'm joined by the prom queen, Rachel Burnett, <laughs> and the captain of the wrestling team, Andy Goulding. <laughs> Hello. Hey. Now then, Rachel, the Breakfast Club, it's more its more than just silly haircuts, right? <laughs> it's a lot more than just silly haircuts. Although, yes, they do have silly haircuts. No, its it's strange. I've watched it many, many times over the years, and it's seems quite timeless to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not a teenager, so I can't promise that teens still feel like this. But you've been one. I have been one. Yeah, I mean, I think teens generally still feel isolated, different, misunderstood, still in their little cliques. And um, it's, it's a great film. And the fact that we're still talking about it 30 years on, did you say? Yes, yeah, these 30 years. That's a long time. Know, it makes it feel... Oh. Um, yeah, that sort of proves the timelessness, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it does. Andy, what's your relationship with this film? Um, well, it's quite interesting because uh, I hate this film <laughs> and I was I was coming in all ready to kind of tear it apart and break it down and tell you exactly why I can't stand it but I can't do that and the reason why I can't do that is because I also love this film <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> okay. I mean it's it's not it's not if you just take it on its own merits it looks a bit silly but you have to break things down and amongst sort of its its counterparts in this high school subgenre I think it really stands above them with its ambition uh, and so I think some of the writing is terrific and it, it also I mean it's very much of its era and I think that is a definite plus I mean people say it's it's aged badly sometimes but before in the gladiator film we talked about how there's a certain sort of dodgy bits of CG in Gladiator, but they really link it to the era it came out, and that's something that's quite endearing. And that's something that I quite like in a film. So, I mean, no one's going to watch sit and watch The Breakfast Club and halfway through it say, just remind me, what, what decade did this come out in again? <laughs> and that, that, for me, is a, is a real charm of it. It's a, it's a real doorway back into the, the 80s, and I think that all get, feeds into making it much better than it might seem on paper. Yeah, I think sooner or later I know that I'm going to end up at one of these 80s weekend things, you know, where uh, <laughs> where the Human League play and um, Heaven 17. I'm going to be stood there singing <laughs> Temptation and, uh, there, you know, there'll be people around me in Choose Life t-shirts, you know, Frankie Says and all this kind of thing. Uh, and I think I should definitely go as a character from The Breakfast Club. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ali Sheedy. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. Right, no, Actually, that's going to be kind of weird because I had a bit of a crush on Ali Sheedy. So I don't want to be at that same event. It might get a bit confusing. <laughs> I'm going to drag you along. Um, yeah, no, I'm, you see, I'm pleased. It was, it was about to get a bit shirty in, in, in the studio here until you said uh, I love this film because, yes. I, you know, there, I, I do love this film and I, it was... Which clown suggested this? It was me, wasn't it? It was, it, it was, was, yeah, it yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I believe you mentioned a top ten of all time at the, uh, uh, the yeah. time when this came up. But. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, well, definitely, see, certainly there or thereabouts. And I yeah, I taped it off of the telly. You remember you used to do that? Tape? Yeah. yeah. Oh, now we've turned into, oh, uh, so Peter, we've turned into Peter Kay now, haven't we? <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember when you used to do that? <laughs> right, so we, we, we taped off the telly, but I missed, I missed the very beginning from the, whenever I, whenever I taped it. And that was, that was my copy for years and years and years until I got bought it, mm. uh, a copy on DVD. And definitely, <laughs> Then, like, after 10 years, I ended up watching the beginning of the film. I didn't know what, you know, I just ended wow. up... I think I, my, my mind would started when they were in the classroom, so in, in detention, so I just thought that's how it started. So you didn't see all the cars dropping the kids off? No. It's really... Yeah, or I the, know. the early reading of the, the speech that yeah. becomes the ending as well. That's yeah. really important. The Some way they dropped off stuff. says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. I know. Oh, so you're missing out on half the film there. I missed that, but I had the poster uh, on the wall, and that's it. I mean, already Ooh. already this series, you know, we've, we've covered uh, bedrooms and bedroom walls, and then the, it, was, it, was, it was definitely there. Um, I I, I didn't know whether now, because it must be 10 years since I've seen this film, you know, sort of properly. 
sat down and watched it. There's always been other things to do, you know, Game of Thrones is on now. <laughs> and I was reluctant, I think, to be because I didn't want to be disappointed. I wanted the memory of it and I wanted to think, well, yeah, yeah, this is, this is the way I, I thought of it. But actually, no, I mean, I watched this for this again and, you know, it, it's, it's there. You know, we'll yeah. excuse, like Andy says, you know, about the 80s thing, we'll excuse the power chords, you know, through the soundtrack <laughs> as someone gets cross. Um, and actually, I mean, on that taped version I had, the swearing was took out, uh-huh. uh, you know, in that awful way they do for TV. But I do remember it was shown because I, I remember I shouldn't have been watching it in the first place, right? Because it was on 11 o'clock at night, right? So I know, I know. Um, but I, I, so it, oh, why do they do that? And I think I they know. still do do that on TV they sometimes. They do, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, come on. We've all moved on from that. I mean, if you watch Beverly Hills Cop before the <laughs> 9 o'clock watch, it's about half an hour short. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, but I did. Yeah, I fell in love with it all over again. And uh, there is, uh, in the characterisation as well, things I hadn't noticed before, because obviously I had a crush on Molly Ringwald and Ali Sheedy. I wasn't fussy. I'd have gone either way. You know, <laughs> not, not bothered about that. But it, it, I think for me, the character of Brian in this oh, really yeah. came out. And it was it was the things he was doing in the background and, and it, the, the subtlety of that character, um, it, you know, it really brought it out for me. Yeah, no, I absolutely love Brian. I love the bit where um, he's taking his coat off. <laughs> I and then going to say that. I love it. And he notices Bender's taking his off as well. he's like oh uh oh you, you better take your coat off first and it's just it's so funny and then he blows on his hands <laughs> to pretend he's, he's gold. it's so funny i just love brian it's so well so well performed it's a great but part. he is he is like he is like these people that you knew at mm. school isn't he and yeah. he's the way he looks and everything yeah. i mean i think the uh the costumes in this are brilliant there's mm. a lady called marilyn vance to the costumes i wrote her name down because i think it's really important it shows that there is a subtlety to this which other directors might not have brought in mm. and see just seeing how it reads on paper people some people would have said right so judd nelson is like the tough guy we'll have him in leathers and, and we'll have Molly Ringwald in like a little pink beret or something. And, mm. and it's not like that. They all have sort of, it's a lot more subtle and showing you. Like they said, I saw an interview where they said that Judd Nelson's wardrobe was, it, they were all sort of clothes that looked well worn. So they looked mm. like they might have been second hand. And yeah. so it gives you far more of an idea than just he's a tough guy. So he's in the rebellious mm get up absolutely I mean that that boot or shoe of his that sort of of hanging off yeah (laughs) he does look kind of a bit um, scruffy and he looks broken yeah he looks damaged so it kind of works Mm. the more I think about it now I'm sat here and I'm thinking well I'm going back over my teenage years which is not a good place to be (laughs) uh, I'm thinking I I think I identify now this is it this is is therapy for me (laughs) thanks everyone don't lie down (laughs) always Um, I think it was I identified with the character of, of Brian, I think, but I didn't want to. That's the point. At the time, I wouldn't have said that. Now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm old. I can look back. Oh, actually, yeah. Mm. I was that nervous, stuttering wreck that, you know, would have tried to bend either way to fit in. Um, but actually, I, well, I don't know. I don't know who I identified with. I certainly wasn't that rebel guy, and I'm not a wrestler. But, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't have admitted that to myself at the time. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it has been. Uh, it's been very therapeutic going back and watching, mm. watching this. I think you do, and I think well, you just said there, there isn't any of Andrew in you. You said you're not a wrestler. But I think that's the point about Breakfast Club is there's little bits of each one of them that's in you. Mm. So you can identify or empathise with every single one of them. OK, I, I didn't get cigarettes put out on me like Bender did. But you understand the anger and uh, about injustice and not knowing quite what's going on. You understand that. And you understand Molly Ringwald just trying to fit in. And she's managed to get in this clique, but does she really want to be in it? And, you know, there is peer pressure on her. And then I also thought Ali Sheedy was the one that I sort of really, you know, felt affinity with. Mm-hmm. But actually Brian as well, very much, because I was always a straight A student. So I didn't do very well on something. 
it was it was catastrophic. It really was, you know, like flare gun in your, in your locker, kind of catastrophic. <laughs> mm, yeah. And um, <laughs> and it's it's strange. You do identify with each and every one of them. I mean, I think that's the genius of it. Straight A's, you say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I, I, I never had that issue. I just spent too much time staring out the window, thinking <laughs> think, thinking about the Breakfast Club. I think. Now, when we uh, when we write up the introductions uh, for the for the program, uh, I think uh, well, all of us probably go to IMDb before and uh, do a bit of uh, uh, research. As, as no one goes to Wikipedia, do they? <laughs> no. it's always IMDb. No, 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 exactly. No one's going to admit to it anyway. We do. Uh, but, uh, but as far as, as IMDb suggests to me that as far as the writing goes well you know apart from A Long Weekend John Hughes shouldn't be credited at all because you know a lot of it was, was improvised on set and uh, certainly a lot of the uh, the, the big lines I, uh, Judd Nelson made up a lot of the terms he used like Neo Maxi Zoomed Weeby uh, which is <laughs> fantastic isn't it <laughs> that's a good one but that's what teens do isn't it they make up loads of strange bizarre slang and bits of language even though he wasn't a teen he was the oldest one there was it 26 yeah well, he had me yeah. fooled. He had me fooled. Yeah, good nine years older than Molly Ringwald, which is a bit strange. Yeah, mm. yeah, just a little bit. Mm. But then uh, I think also the joke as he's going through and he's talking, <laughs> as he's going through the ceiling, just before he falls through the ceiling. And uh, yeah, you know, he, he made a whole lot because I think he was quite frustrated because there wasn't, you know, there was a, a sort of a lack of script in some places. And I think we'd, we've been here before, haven't we, with, uh, with Russell, Crow. Russell Crowe? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Now uh, he got the Oscar for that, you remember. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not dredge it off again. Oh, no. I just get angry again. I know. <laughs> Do you think that this the performance of Judd Nelson as John Bender is better than than Russell Crowe's performance? <laughs> just out of interest. There's, there's a certain amount of ham to both of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I think I think Judd Nelson's works a bit better. I think it's a, mm. quite a powerhouse performance. It's pleasure to say that about Russell Crowe as well. But I guess there's more vulnerability in Bender, isn't there? I think you do get a sense of everything about him when you first see him you think god he's such an arse <laughs> and, then, and then by the end of it when he's in that room in that what looks like some kind of broom cupboard and the headmaster comes in and sort of looks at him and you think oh my god he's really scared he's properly scared he's just a little boy and it's that vulnerability that he gets through i think it's really clever i think he does a beautiful job of it when principal vernon confronts him that's a really kind of a uh, that's the first time he's he sort of confronted on mm. those terms that it's almost like he's seeing what he's trying to put across in himself mm. hit back at him, isn't it? And yeah. there's, there's kind of assumptions that you go along that where is Bender going to end up and he could equally become Carl the janitor or he could become Principal Vernon. Mm. And on balance, I'd rather be Carl the janitor. No, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I think, in fact, I think Carl the janitor might be my favourite character in this. <laughs> I, like I know he's that. only in it a little bit, but he brings he brings a lot to it, isn't he? He's the only person who sees it like across the board, the adults and the teens side of things mm. on a, sort of an equal balance because he's the, the eyes and ears of the institution, <laughs> yeah. isn't he? That's the the key sort of speech where he says, "I've I've looked through your lockers and I've listened to your conversations," and I think he has a better idea of them all than mm. they do of themselves. Oh, definitely. Did Principal Vernon included. I mean, he has that beer with him, doesn't he? Yeah. Later on downstairs, where they're where they're all up getting high in the <laughs> library. <laughs> it's all about the drugs, isn't it? And yeah, yeah. I mean, you're exactly right there, Andy, because they the the, the others are too involved in the war, aren't they? You know, the students versus yeah. the teachers, the teachers mm-hmm. versus the students, which is you know probably the way the way it should be. So and later, Andy will be taking a look at movies with disappointing endings, and Rachel's investigating movie makeovers. That's after this short break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more and help us keep supplied with coffee and cake, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. 
Alternatively, if you're planning on buying anything from Amazon, you can do that via the links on our website and we get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including The Middlesteins by Jamie Attenberg, narrated by The Breakfast Club's Molly Ringwald. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help keep our producer Johnny supplied with homeopathic remedies and aura cleansing crystals. Now, back to the show. Uh, Maybe you'll even decide whether or not you care to return. Yeah, you know, I can answer that right now, sir. You know, that'd be no, no for me. Welcome back. You are listening to Spoiler and we are talking about The Breakfast Club. So if you've not seen the end of The Breakfast Club, we are just about to spoil it for you. But honestly, where have you been the last 30 years? Uh, OK, so uh, as, as we move uh, to, towards the end of this film, there's, there's a makeover, isn't there? There is indeed. Um, <laughs> oh, and Andy just grows. Oh, we, we, we can make Andy make that noise at any point. Let's just uh, let's see, see what happens when I say, uh, Andy, the makeover. Oh, Ali Sheedy. <laughs> what a shudder as well. Oh, Specified Ali Sheedy. Okay. Oh, yeah, lovely I'm, woman ruined. No. You, well, I'm not. I'm not going to do this again. So, I mean, Andy, uh, to talk to us about your obvious disappointment uh, <laughs> as, as, as to you know what happens here. Well, it, it isn't just that I don't like the makeover she's given. It's that I don't like the fact that she's given a makeover mm. at all. I mean, uh, to me, the kind of the message of this is that we are all sort of the same underneath, and yeah, it seems at, at, right at the end we have the the sort of most out there one has to be forced into this kind of mold of normality i mean th- this is what finally sort of sparks a romance with her and emilio estevez's character and the, the sort of little hints at, that that's coming throughout i think emilio estevez shows a kind of interest in her and yet there's, there isn't any kind of indication that she's gonna that he's actually going to act on that until Molly Ringwald takes her to one side and takes all the black makeup off and she pulls all the hair out of her face and she she puts her in like a pink top. Mm. Where on earth that came from? I don't know. But, and then she, she comes out and I think it's that moment where you're supposed to go, wow, as she comes out. But I mean, it's not, I mean, we talked in the Vertigo episode about Kim Novak coming out and mm. everyone being stunned. And it's hardly that, is it? No. It's, for me, it's, oh, what have you done to her? No, absolutely. <laughs> and why? And why have you done this? Because for me, that that ruins the whole thing. I mean, at the beginning of the, the Breakfast Club, there's a, a quote comes up on the screen. I know, like way back when we started spoiler in the US episode, we talked about how if anyone ever puts quotes in things, we don't read them because we just think they're <laughs> a bit pretentious and probably mean nothing. But this is a David Bowie quote, and so when it's Bowie, you, you sit up you and listen. you pay attention, <laughs> don't you? Yeah. And this this quote was actually suggested uh, to John Hughes by Ali Sheedy, and it's from. Changes by David Bowie and it's and these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations they're quite aware what they're going through and that that's how the film starts with that and then the screen smashes and that quote crumbles down and I think that's supposed to sort of represent a sort of like energy and passion of youth smashing but to me it's the the emblematic of the film's contradictions. It's like, here's the film's message and now crash, we've mm. destroyed it yeah. in one fell swoop no. by, by bringing in, by making it about looks. 
and mm. not what's underneath. And I mean, why? Why would you do that? I think what they could have done is sort of half a bit of a halfway house and maybe had the hair come back from her face. You can see her face. So it's more sort of emblematic of her revealing herself to the world, not being as scared anymore of, of showing herself. But I don't think she needed the change of outfit. I don't no. think she needed to go pink. And you could have left the, the black shit around her eyes. <laughs> you could have left that all in. And I just, I kind of half get it. That reveal, that kind of... It's not her becoming better or becoming more acceptable. It's her revealing herself and holding her head high because she always was slouched over and when she comes comes out, her shoulders are back. But I just think they, they should not have bothered with the clothes. And I'm like, just, just keep her with a nice black jumper on because that's her. But I suppose that in itself is still quite big and baggy and hiding, isn't it? I suppose so, so yeah. I mean, this is, this is the defence that I've heard used yeah. the most and I think it's underlined when Amelia Etifaz says to her, he likes it. And he says, yeah, I can see your face, doesn't he? But it's not enough for me. I mean, everyone always talks about John Hughes's kind of understanding kids and being the voice of this generation. And as the voice of this generation, is his message to the world really no more than don't hide your face behind your fringe? Yeah, that's very true. (laughs) It's a funny thing, because I'm sat here, I just paint the picture for the listener, I'm sat here in between the pair of you, a little bit like an umpire in, say, a tennis match. (laughs) And as the conversation flips back between you, I think, oh, oh yeah, Andy, I agree with what Andy's saying. And then it's conservation, I'm thinking... No, no, actually, Rachel just made a good point. Shut up, Andy. And then, <laughs> and then as it fits back, oh, no, no, Andy's right. I'm going to sit on the fence on this one. <laughs> I'll make a nice change. <laughs> you, you should see the view from here. It's incredible. Um, now, these makeover moments where the ugly duckling turns into the swan have long been a staple of Hollywood movies. Rachel has been taking a look at more movie makeovers. From the moment Cinderella first put her uniquely shaped foot into that impossibly impractical glass slipper, people, and especially young girls, have been obsessed with the magic of the makeover. Storytellers and filmmakers have often used this pulpit to princess, geek to gorgeous premise, to tell fairy tale esque stories, producing generations of little girls who grow up thinking that if only they had a fantastic makeover, if only they were pretty, they too would be worthy of an epic love story or a successful career. My first recollection of a film makeover was watching Grease. Like many, I watched it at a very young age, far too young to understand what a hickey was or why everyone was talking about putting out. And I remember vividly the last sequence when Olivia Newton-John appeared in her skin-tight black leggings and leather jacket. Oddly, I don't recall thinking, wow, she looks amazing. I always thought she looked better before. Sandy, tell me about it, Stan. As I grew older and I came to understand more about the makeover and the character's motivation for doing it, I found myself getting more and more angry. Why had she changed so dramatically for someone who had treated her so badly? Why did Danny not take her aside and tell her to get back in her pretty yellow dress? That he wanted the real her and not the person she thought he wanted. Instead, the whole school appeared to celebrate the transformation and the newly vamped up Sandy got the guy. Great. Now heralded as something of a teen classic, She's All That tells a story of Lainey, a high school geek, an arty, quirky girl who is thought so monstrously odd that the most popular guy in school is bet that he can't turn her into a prom queen in six weeks. Given the right look, the right boyfriend, bam. Lainey is played by an obviously very pretty Rachel Lee Cook, but that doesn't stop the filmmakers trying to convince the audience that the girl needs a makeover before she can be deemed acceptable. 
When Lainey appears from her transformation and the love interest is stood aghast at the reveal of the hidden beauty, I have flashbacks to Greece and again think she looks more of an individual, more special before. Gentlemen, may I present the new, not improved, but different, Lainey Box. It's not always about love, though. Sometimes characters are given makeovers to prepare them for a new role. A princess, an undercover agent, or maybe a competent businesswoman. I give you Anne Hathaway in The Princess Diaries. Me? A princess? Shut up! Sandra Bullock in Miss Congeniality. You think I'm gorgeous? You want to kiss me? And Melanie Griffith in Working Girl. I have a head for business and a bod for sin. Is there anything wrong with that? In all of these examples, the transformations are, I suppose, professionally necessary, unconnected to any romantic missions, although all three attract more male attention post-makeover. I guess the idea is that regardless of their capabilities, would you really trust your kingdom to a teenager with a monobrow or your successful business to a woman with a massive mullet? There are two dramatically awful makeovers in John Hughes' Pretty in Pink, one when Molly Ringwald appears in her homemade prom dress at the end of the film. The wildly bigged-up dress is so hideous, it's almost cringeworthy, even for the 80s. And the second when the Mohican-wearing kick-ass record store boss Iona, played by the fantastic Annie Potts, goes middle-aged prematurely and starts wearing a white trouser suit and listening to Barry Manilow. Both of these transformations are meant to be improvements on the original, but for me, as always, I preferred them before. My favourite makeovers happen far more gradually and in line with the burgeoning confidence of the transforming character. The makeover is not the cause of the inner change, rather the inner change happens and causes a transformation externally. Two films that show this most successfully are Strictly Ballroom and Muriel's Wedding. In both films, which coincidentally are both Australian, the main characters are average looking, don't look after themselves too well, cover themselves in layers of baggy clothes and clearly suffer from esteem issues. We've told you a thousand times how to do your hair, but you never listen. You never wear the right clothes. You're fat. Listen to 70s music. This is the 90s. But I can change. You'll still be you. There isn't a makeover montage in either of these films, and yet, by the end of the movie, both women have clearly transformed and look radiant. They are still themselves, they are not hidden under lots of makeup, fancy new hairdos and unsuitable clothes, but they are happy. Their newly found confidence in themselves and the belief that they are deserving of happiness makes these women truly beautiful. That's the kind of makeover I can really get behind, and the kind that I would want all the Cinderella-obsessed young girls to look to for inspiration. Whether geeky, quirky, frizzy-haired or mullet-adorned, follow your dreams, be true to yourself, find your happiness, and that will shine through, making you more beautiful than any slipper-wearing princess. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Rachel. Now, we're talking here about the makeover, and uh, we've, we've gone, you know, sort of very, very near the ending, almost touching the ending, really just because we wanted to see that reaction from Andy. <laughs> uh, but be- before that, there's... Well, listen, I, I think I timed it to be around about 20 minutes, a 20-minute scene where they, they sit down, laugh and cry, and it was basically just a big old ad-lib, wasn't it? You know, they'd obviously been living in each other's pockets for a long time. Um, things were, were pretty tough on set, as, 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 as the rumours go. Um, and, uh, and there they were. They were just sat there pouring their heart 
parts out. And I, it's still, still for me, I think this is what clinched, I think, the film for me a long, long time ago, that actually it was okay to show your emotions. Before then, it was, it was you know, it, it still took a long time for me after that to, you know, to, to reveal anything. But uh, it seemed like you could sit down in a circle and go, oh, hang on a minute, there's other kids that are, are having these sort of issues as well. And, it, and it, you look back now, with with scorn perhaps and think well they're not really issues you know wait till you see mm. your tax bill and all that kind of business but no actually you know it's, it's real it's, for them it's in the moment and it's, it's it's sort of happening now isn't it I mean did you like that scene Andy before, before your heart was broken <laughs> <laughs> um, well for me actually this this is the bit where I, the film starts to lose me a little bit I really like the sort of first hour <laughs> when it builds up to that uh, but then for me it, it starts to go downhill when the cannabis comes out. I think that feels like a really lazy way to get them into this state of vulnerability where they open up to each other. Mm, it should have been gin, shouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think we just it didn't we didn't need the cannabis at all. They, they should have brought each other round with the, their talking and just got to that naturally. I mean, it's nice to have that bit where they run around the halls, but you could motivate that through some other way. Apart, and apart from the fact that I don't know if John Hughes even understands the effects of cannabis because I've never seen anyone take a puff on a joint and then do it like a a minute long aerobics routine like <laughs> Amelia Estes does in this but then once I mean it seems to have sort of a, a vague cartoonish cannabis effect for about a minute and then they just sort of start to open up and I think it's it'd be more believable if I mean teenagers are like that anyway they they will open up to to strangers because the slightest little trigger I think because they they've got all this built up in them and when someone starts to sort of poke it a bit that part of them wants to keep it in but part of them just wants to let that damn burst and come out and they all sort of individually do that don't they but I just wish it had been a bit tighter and a bit more it come from the characters rather than it seems like a bell rings at an hour in and they say right time to change tone mm. what do you think rachel did you like that i do like the, the 20 minute bit um i get really upset actually i get upset by the way that molly ringwald's character is treated yeah, it's, yeah it's, and i can almost see how real is this actually because the way bender comes at her and then hearing the bullying stories afterwards mm-hmm. and how um how the, the actor used to have a go I'm thinking, do you know what? I think she's genuinely really upset because her face goes all flushed. I mean, I know she's a good actress, but is she that good? Because there's genuine distress and she kicks him, doesn't she? She like kicks out and tells him to shut up. And it just feels like they're all having a go at her. Like, you know, even um, Brian says that, that she's horrible and then Bender says that she's a bitch. And, you know, she's just as conflicted as everyone else there. She's just as tied up in this whole cliquey nonsense. It's true, but I you think that, that's where the real for me, that's where the realism comes oh, in because is, yeah, that, that would, would happen Absolutely. in that situation, Absolutely it? realistic, but it definitely upsets me. It's that pile on that they have when, when they're, they're trying to get her to say whether or not she's lost mm. a virginity yeah. and that seems like really but that that's very realistic to mm. me because oh definitely you, you get all these characters no matter sort of what they're like once someone starts off that kind of thing mm. and others get involved they're all sort of looking for acceptance aren't they and mm. they're all oh it's her turn now let's mm. let's go for her yeah I mean that does come up well three of the characters we know are virgins because yeah. obviously brian says that he is yeah and she said that's okay but it's not okay for her to say it about herself. She doesn't want to be drawn on it. Yeah. 
And then Ali Sheedy's character, after she's admitted that she's a compulsive liar, and she's a virgin as well. And so that is something, actually, when you're a teenager, that really matters whether somebody's a virgin or not. And when you're a girl as well, obviously you do weren't girls when you're teenagers. But there is that question of if you have, then, you know, you're a slut. And if you haven't, then you're, you know, you're frigid or whatever. And there is that double-edged sword. And she's completely right to identify that. I don't know if that came from Ali Sheedy entirely or whether that was from John Hughes, that mention of, you know, that double-edged sword that teenage girls especially live on. But I totally identified with that, the whole idea of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Yeah, I didn't see it from that side because mm. when I was that age, I so obviously was. And, <laughs> and was going to be for a very long time Aww. afterwards. <laughs> but then the confusion of teenage girls, this just... You know, when you watch this as a teenager, you think, well, hang on a minute. Then this has all happened. And then she goes into that room with Bender at the end and uh, starts kissing him. We think, yeah. well, no, no, what? No, mm. he's a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> that is really odd. It is like he's just bullied her quite mm. relentlessly. And yet there's some sort of affinity. I don't know. It's, it was quite weird. But then there is that whole thing of he's the bad boy. And, you know, she, he obviously wants to score with her as well because it's the prom queen. But I just feel like there's something more to it than that. It doesn't feel like they're just scoring points off each other. And yet he says that thing about he would be outstanding in the capacity of getting back at her parents, isn't he? Is there is there more to it than that, or are they just are they just going to use this alliance to kind of hit out? At... I feel there's more to it because she gives him an earring. <laughs> she does, yeah. And that to me sort of gives it a bit more weight because she's given him one of her earrings, and it probably is a real diamond as well, because we know that she has very expensive things. Are we supposed to feel that he's he's been changed in any sort of significant mm. way, or is he still going to be this character? I think we're supposed to believe that all of them have changed a little bit, aren't we? So I'd like to think. I know she says in the twenty minute section that. If Claire sees Brian walking down the halls, she's not going to acknowledge him or anything. But yeah. I don't know if that's true after everything else. I don't think she's going to do that. I picked up on something really interesting the last time I watched it, which I've never seen before as well. Brian gets very sort of high and mighty about that, doesn't he? He says, mm. I wouldn't do that to any of you and I won't. Yeah. And yet at the beginning of the film, when Carl, the janitor, comes in and says hello to Brian and he ov- they obviously have a bit of a relationship already mm. and he's embarrassed, doesn't he? And he won't say hello to Carl oh, yeah. in front of the others. So I don't think that Brian is quite as angelic as he's mm. making out in this count. Yeah, maybe not. Well, I know he was going to go and shoot himself with a flare gun. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All over a ceramic elephant. <laughs> so you would. But there's a, that trivia, the trivia got hold of me, you know, <laughs> when, I, when I went through uh, IMDb for this. And, and, and one of the trivia facts were, some of the trivia things were, and um, we always like to do this here, look at other actors that were uh, either went down for it or, or were due to play it or, or didn't, you know, auditioned. And, um, well, Rick Moranis was down to play the janitor. I can see that. I can totally see that. Me too. In fact, almost more so. Yes. (laughs) Um, But John Cusack. Now, this this is the thing. Do you say Cusack or Cusack? Cusack. Cusack. Mm. Me me too. Uh, John Cusack. Um, Now, who's going to be John Bender before Judd Nelson? And you're shaking your head. No, 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 (laughs) no. A thousand times no. Really? No, I'm a massive John Cusack fan, especially around that age as well. I was deeply in love with John Cusack but he's I don't know he'd already done quite a few films he's already known oh, oh was he I mean I didn't watch I it when it first came well out because he'd just he'd been he'd played a very small part in 16 Candles which mm. was just before this but he was still sort of building, I think he'd done Better Off Dead which is a really weird film mm. but I don't think it, I think it was really kind of like Say Anything was a real sort of major yeah. one for him, wasn't it? Which See, I saw Say Anything film. first. And I think because I didn't watch this when it first came out, because I'd have been eight. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I clearly didn't watch it when it first came out. So I was a little while before I got to it. And by the time I got to it, John Cusack was something else to 
me. Yeah. So to imagine him as Bender wouldn't have worked. He wouldn't have been he wouldn't have been tough enough for me, I don't think. Although I have seen John Cusack do tough. Yeah. But he was already my idol, my heartthrob. <laughs> so I wouldn't have wanted it. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was a no purely because he probably could have done it. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't have it. wanted him to. I think he's, he's, he's quite versatile, isn't oh, he's he? very but versatile. I just don't know if he, he would have been as sort of physically imposing mm. as Judd Nelson was. Mm. And that's, that's quite an important thing, I think, yeah. for Bender because like that whole sort of beginning bit where he essentially is the puppet master at the beginning, isn't yeah. he? He's, he's getting at them all in different ways. Mm. I don't know if I if I would have felt that with John Cusack doing it as, as much as this big guy mm. who looks like he could knock you through the wall. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and uh, I think we're all going to agree on this one. Laura Dern as Claire. Oh, no. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> now, the last piece of, of trivia, and it, it's a beaut. Now, some, someone's gone for this, and they've looked They've looked at The pen that Brian Johnson uses in the film is a Lamy Safari model L217. Now, that, now just that, the oh, wow. fact that someone knows that goes to show the, the, the love that people have and the dedication. Uh, and I love that it's Brian's pen. Yeah. Mm. He'd really that appreciate that. The one that goes up his nostril. When he's... <laughs> yeah, and he puts it on his, on his lip and pings yeah. it. That is also almost like the... The bit of trivia that Brian himself would have contributed yeah, if totally. he'd watched this film. Totally now, if I can make that noise, just that's the one. All right, there we go. I'm getting more and more like Brian. Here. You are Brian. It's a good thing. It's a compliment. It is a compliment. He's a great lad. Well, you see, I take it now. You see, but then in those, no, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> okay, now as we've discussed, the Breakfast Club's final scenes are somewhat divisive. Andy has, well, apart from those of us who sit on the fence, <laughs> Andy, Andy has been looking at some other movies with disappointing. Some might say, some might say, on the fence with it endings. <laughs> In Spike Jones's film adaptation, creative writing instructor Robert McKee tells struggling screenwriter Charlie Kaufman, Wild them in the end. You got a hit. You can have flaws, problems, but wild them in the end, and you've got a hit. Although his words are portrayed as the unsound advice of a hack, there is a grain of truth in them from a commercial perspective at least, as the box office success of M. Night Shyamalan's tiresomely tricked up turkeys attests. What McKee fails to mention is that it can work the other way around too. No matter how great a film may be, a really bad ending can tarnish it, or, in the worst circumstances, derail it completely. It's unlikely that anyone would ever claim Richard Donner's Superman is a flawless film, but despite its numerous strange moments, from the feeble slapstick of Ned Beatty's comic sidekick Otis, to Lois Lane's truly dreadful airborne poetry recitation, Superman has been embraced by audiences as the entertaining oddity that it is. In its closing set piece, however, the film tips over from campy amiability to unforgivably bombastic nonsense. When he finds himself unable to save his beloved Lois from the after-effects of a nuclear missile, Superman reverses time by flying at an incredible speed in order to spin the Earth backwards on its axis. Aside from the faulty assumption that time works in the same way as a C90 cassette manipulated with a pencil, this 11th hour plot device takes a lot of the tension out of subsequent Superman films, during which everyone watching inevitably responds to any disaster with the suggestion, just spin the earth backwards again. Despite the fact that the time reversal ending inspired the almost universal response of come on from fans and detractors alike, Superman 2 ended on a similarly frustrating note with Superman erasing Lois's memory of his secret identity with a magic kiss, another power of which the audience had been hitherto unaware. 
This ludicrous detail sucks out any excitement we might have derived from the risk that the human race might suddenly develop the ability to recognise the same man with and without glasses, thereby exposing Soup's alias. After all, one cheeky snog and they'd be returned to a state of mildly harassed ignorance. I feel like I'm sitting on the single most important story of my career and I can't remember what it is. It's not just latter-day blockbusters that can suffer from climactic collapse. Many films that are recognised as cinematic classics also feature terribly misjudged endings. Howard Hawks' Red River, considered one of the greatest westerns ever made, falls apart during its climactic showdown when the two participants, John Wayne and Montgomery Clift, are talked into abandoning their feud and admitting that they love each other instead. Stop it, I said! I'm mad, good and mad, and who wouldn't be? You dunce and pretending you're going to kill him, when anybody with half a mind would know you two love each other. This is despite the tyrannical, murderous behaviour of Wayne's character in previous scenes, which seems to be forgotten immediately by all concerned. You better marry that girl, Matt. Charles Lawton's revered Night of the Hunter undergoes a detrimental change in tone towards the end, in which its ominous mood becomes bizarrely comedic and then overwhelmingly sentimental, while Alfred Hitchcock's brilliant The Wrong Man, which for the most part is uncompromisingly authentic, undermines its true-life story of a woman's mental collapse with a fictional final caption regarding her recovery. But more so than any of these examples, it is the ending of Frank Capra's Christmas classic It's a Wonderful Life that really upsets me. I'm not talking about the delightful final scenes which, though admittedly layering on the syrup with a trowel, capture the spirit of the festive season perfectly. The offending scene comes prior to this, but is pivotal in convincing James Stewart's George Bailey of his worth as a human being. Pushed to consider suicide, Bailey is on the brink of taking his own life when the angel Clarence appears and proceeds to show him how different the world would have been without him. It turns out that the difference George has made to the world is monumental, his absence leading to numerous tragic deaths and descents into madness and alcoholism for close friends and family members. Apparently, all this isn't quite enough. Clarence? Yes, George? Where's Mary? You're not going to like it, George. Where is she? She's an old maid. What really convinces George not to take his own life is the fact that without him, his wife would have become... Gasp! An old maid! Not just any old maid, though, but an old maid librarian. Where is she? She's just about to close up the library! Utterly horrified by the idea of a woman in charge of a place of learning, who has the audacity to dress without flair and brazenly wear unflattering spectacles, George returns home for a finale that just about restores our faith in humanity, even if we are still a bit shaky on gender politics. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas! Finally, we return to the world of John Hughes with Pretty in Pink, a film which has been roundly criticised because most viewers believe the love triangle ends with Molly Ringwald's Andy making the wrong choice. Though I initially agreed with the majority, I've come to realise that what many consider to be a bad ending is in fact the correct one. Focusing on the class divider at Illinois High School, Pretty in Pink tells the story of working class Andy's blossoming relationship with rich boy Blaine, a union which is disapproved of by Andy's best friend and longtime admirer Ducky. When the pressures of their social differences and aggressive peer groups become too much, Blaine backs off and shows himself to have very little backbone, while Ducky continues to defend Andy's honour against hallway bullies. You're ashamed to be seen with no, me! I am you're not. ashamed to go out with me! You're afraid! No, you're terrified that your goddamn rich friends want to throw! 
film ends with Andy, decked out in a pink thrift store dress, walking into the prom with Ducky, where they are met by an apologetic Blaine who has realised the error of his ways and wishes them well. Seeing that he is a changed man, Ducky tells Andy to go after Blaine, forfeiting his own happiness for the sake of the woman he loves. If you don't go to him now, I'm never going to take you to another prom ever again, you hear me? It's Ducky. Fans of Pretty in Pink have long protested that its ending is a cop-out and that Andy should have ended up with Ducky, but this widely held opinion seems based on little more than the fact that John Cryer's charismatic portrayal of the character is more fun to watch than Andrew McCarthy's gallant struggle with the underwritten role of Blaine. But from a moral standpoint, this is the best possible climax. All three characters have grown, with Blaine finally standing up to his loathsome pals, Ducky putting his best friend's happiness before his own, and Andy embracing her roots with a shocking pink tribute to individuality. Had Andy ended up with Ducky, the resounding message to take away from Pretty and Pink would have been the far less inspiring, stick to your own social class. Great stuff, thanks Andy. Uh, now, the, the Breakfast Club, as we steer the ship towards the end now, uh, I mean, this was, this was going to be part of a franchise, uh, checking in on their lives over over periods of years. I mean, mm. d- d- does that sound like a good idea to anyone? <laughs> no, no. I, I'd, I'd like to leave it where it is. Mm, I think. Me too. But well, I mean, we've we've talked there briefly about would they talk in the corridor? But you know, did any of these relationships last? Uh, I mean, you know, with do, uh, do with any when you're a teenager? <laughs> Hell, I don't know. It's I'd like to. I like it to be left with us just wondering and going with your own personality of what you think might have happened. I can imagine Brian going on to be some renowned physicist or something <laughs> and and uh, Ali Sheedy being a creative of some kind, an artist or something like that. But, but you don't want that confirmed here. It's no. like those math films that end with showing you images of each character and a little caption that mm. just tells you that. Like, no. the, I think like one thing that you really need to preserve for these these characters is that enclosed environment and you can't keep thrusting them into that. It's going to open out, mm. isn't it? And they're going to be in different places. And I think the, what makes this film so special is putting them in that library and saying, you have to stay here together and you have to. Mm. And once they're out, all sorts could happen to them, but I don't want to know. No, I doubt they'd ever be in contact with each other ever again. Well, my theory, know. after a couple of divorces each, um, <laughs> Claire and Bending meet up on Facebook and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and get together and ride off into the sunset. And let's talk about the ending. The very ending, the very ending for me is, and I've done this, I've done this when I've left work on a Friday. I used to have this job where I used to have to lock a gate and walk across a bit of a field. And that field always, for me, was walking across that socket field and <laughs> punching the air. And, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I do that. And I'm doing it right now. It's, it's, it's a <laughs> brilliant feeling on a Friday when you finish work uh, just to say, yeah, yeah, I'm out of here, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, a memorable image, isn't it? But that sort of iconic moment where he, he comes across and he punches the air and the picture freezes and it's sort of in silhouette. I can't take that seriously either. What? Because <laughs> you can't take anything seriously. This is this is an even oh, stupider reason. Because uh, when it goes into silhouette, his hand, Judd Nelson's hand, looks really strange, and it looks like he's wielding a big chicken leg. <laughs> it doesn't look like he's punching the air. It looks like he, he's got a big chicken leg there. And I look at it every time and think. What's going on? What's going on with his hand? But that's all I can see now. And obviously, as a vegan, that doesn't, that doesn't sit well as an end. Very really. unseemly. <laughs> maybe, just maybe, he was hungry. Have you thought about that? <laughs> well, he hadn't eaten some breakfast, has he? <laughs> I also danced like Claire, by the way. Do you? Yeah, with your hands kind of. Yeah, you know. we're absolute eighties. Yeah, the hands uh, like that, and yeah. also the, the, the particularly the feet movement. Oh yes. Yeah. 
I dance more like Brian, you know, just like throwing yourself around. <laughs> I do dance quite a bit like Ali Sheedy. I sort of <laughs> fling my arms about and then end up on the floor. <laughs> well, we, we've nearly got we've nearly got the whole team. That's what I'm saying. Johnny B. <laughs> uh, jo- well, Johnny's obviously uh, jumping over the uh, the library shelves like the rest. <laughs> without a doubt, yeah, he's, he's nodding. He knows. He knows. <laughs> okay, but well, I, leading us there towards the music and. Um, Wait, this is something I, I didn't know until uh, more of this trivia. Oh, I love trivia. You love trivia. <laughs> I didn't know because I thought "Don't You Forget About Me" was a Simple Minds song. I thought I, I, if you'd have asked me, I'd have sworn down on it. I'd have put my house on it, even though I don't own it, and and said that absolutely would be. Now, apparently, Billy Idol turned it down. Can you imagine that? Billy yeah, Idol. yeah, right on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. don't you forget about me. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then Brian Fer- Brian Ferry, could you imagine that? Nope. I'm not about to do a Brian Ferry. <laughs> Chrissy Hind, Chrissy Hind got offered this, and I, another thing I didn't know, she was married to Jim Kerr. I didn't even know that. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I knew that. Yeah. Well, Jim, I I mean, it? Sooner or later, we all get married to Jim I Kerr. Who's married to Patsy? He Kenzie? was. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 that's okay. true. As yeah. well, yep. Ray Davis's baby, didn't she? As well. Oh, this is all getting very incestuous. I don't understand. <laughs> okay, right. So we, we need to, to turn... retire to the library and work this all out. So we, we need. We need to. We need to turn away from being the Grazia podcast. <laughs> Uh, back to spoiler, um, but I just can't imagine anyone else but Simple Minds no. doing no, that song. Definitely not. Certainly not Chrissy Hind. No. Right on. Right. Okay. Right now then. Um, so we move now to our, our final verdicts and our final marks. And uh, this, well, it's the end of series three. So this could depend on whether there's going to be a series four and whether we all go out in the car park and have a big fight afterwards. <laughs> um, for a long, long time, this was my favourite film. Then someone went and made School of Rock. <laughs> okay. So all I want to know now. Is do you prefer this or School of Rock, Rachel? School of Rock, Andrew. Yes, yeah, School of Rock. <laughs> Reluctantly, with fists still in the air, <laughs> and as it, it's nothing. It's, it's not going to beat School of Rock. School of Rock is going to take some beating. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> we should have that as every single one. It's going to be an easy answer, isn't it? Now yep. I don't have to write any endings anymore. Uh, right. Okay. So before we get to uh, Andy's poem, uh, we've got a music quiz, have we? We have. Right. So uh, end of term uh, rules. Do you remember when people used to bring in biscuits and food in here? Now I did. It went wrong, didn't it? It is. It, we end series three. I it's, can't it's remember one piece of food for series three. We don't get any donations. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so if you want to hear a series four uh, with uh, cookies crumbling out, <laughs> crumbling out of my mouth, uh, press on the uh, on the donate site on the uh, spoiler podcast Podbean page johnny's johnny's not here to tell me the website address um but hey yeah look us up donate something go on that do that audible thing get yourself a free audio book and uh, and then we're gonna buy some uh, uh jammy dodges are all right for everyone aren't they yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. excellent right okay just some jammy dodges heaven's sake okay <laughs> end of term party like this and for that we need some music and yes. a quiz uh, of which we know i'm not very good i think you're gonna ace this one paul you're kidding me because it's about 80 stuff. All oh, right, okay, right. Well, in which well case, on right, okay. All <laughs> oh, right, okay. Here we go. Okay, yeah. So it's a it's an 80s music film quiz. So uh, basically it's five pieces of music and they all relate to a different they're all from a different 80s film. No designated questions this time. You just as soon as you recognize what film it's from, 
jump in and shout it out. Oh, right. Do we have to go or something like that? Uh, no, no, you can just you can just shout you can just shout okay. out. Okay. Now, one thing I, I thought with our last uh, music quiz is the stakes haven't really been high enough. We mm. haven't had uh, any decent prizes really. So <laughs> I thought I would I would up it a bit this time. And I would bring in something a bit. Is it a weekend for two in Aruba? <laughs> no, it's better than that. Put uh, it's. I thought I'd do something era appropriate. So mm. I've made an eighties mixtape. <gasps> Uh, the the best of the eighties, oh. uh, which the uh, the winner will get. This is the, the best of the eighties, so it's got the likes of New Order, Echo and the Bunnymen, oh. the Smiths, oh. Uh, oh. the Pogues are on there, Kate Bush. Oh, don't touch yeah. it, you have one yet. <laughs> so that that's up for grabs now. Just just to make it slightly more edgy to see. I'm already on the edge of my seat. You and, mentioned Kate Bush. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, oh yeah, pillar to post has to take cameras on here. Yeah. Oh, this is brilliant. And um, yeah, Billy Bragg. Depeche Mode. <laughs> oh, okay, right, sorry, carry on. Uh, just to keep us on the edge of our seat, and because uh, The Breakfast Club encapsulates for me the best and the worst of the 80s, <laughs> the loser will get a worst of the 80s oh, compilation, no. which they have to listen to no. in its entirety. Oh, Here no. it, it starts with the Birdie song, of oh, course. Oh, man. We've got Agadu, Rene and Renata on there. Oh. <laughs> St. Winifred Agadou. School Choir. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So that, that those are the uh, right, oh, right, oh, those are what we're playing no. for. <laughs> oh no, Orville's song. Oh. So right, keep that in, keep that in mind. <laughs> single, right? Okay. Keep that in mind, and we'll go we'll go for the first clip. So all I need from you guys, I don't need to know the title, of the song, or oh. the artist, just the name of the film that this comes well, from. As soon as you know, I'm okay shout on music, out. but not good on films, as we know. <laughs> You tell me the name of the song. Top Gun! Oh. Top Gun! <laughs> right in my mind then, I went straight away That's to gone. Berlin. I'm going to switch uh, switch these CDs around so, okay, the, uh, right, so that, the best of the 80s is nearer to Rachel now. Okay, right, currently I'm looking at tight, uh, tight fit. <laughs> okay, yeah, that was that Hang was on a minute, hang on a minute, John. Especially for you by Kylie and Jamie on your worst. It's on the worst, yeah. What's wrong with you? Well, I'm, I'm glad that there'll be some consolation for the loser. <laughs> that way. Right, go for it. Okay, can we have clip number two, please? Beverly Hills Cop. Yes! No! <laughs> okay. I just went Okay. Right. Okay, the CDs are moving back into the middle <laughs> so of the, the table. The CDs now. are in the middle of the table, so that's, mm-hmm. that's one apiece. Right, so clip number three, then, please. Footloose. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now you were all over that, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. For the... Right, so uh, Rachel's Rachel's okay. leading then. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, clip number four. You need to get to the chorus for this one. Okay. I'm not sure I can listen to this. Is this on the worst CD? Is it? I'm trying to go ahead in the song. Is he dirty dancing? No. Oh. But you can keep guessing. <laughs> oh, no, that's really annoying. If, if no one guesses this song, it's going to come down to the last. Oh, no. Um, okay, I'll, I'll try and give you a clue. Give, me, give, um, give us a clue. It stars Ralph Macchio. Karate Kid. Yes. Hey. Karate Kid. What on earth is going on with us? <laughs> that's uh, that's well. Unfortunately, that's taken the edge off the excitement because it's uh, three-one to Rachel. But we'll uh, we'll okay, go for the well. last clip anyway, <laughs> just for the fun of it. Paul, you can have a look at what you can listen okay, to tonight. I'm lo- yeah, I'm looking at this now. I just called "Say I Love You" by Stevie Wonder's on your worst. I'm is. happy with this. I'm happy with <laughs> yeah. this. It's okay. I've got Kajigugu on there as well. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> 
too shy. Dad, my ex. Oh, oh no, I oh, no, hang on a minute. Oh, no, no, what have <laughs> you seen? Daddy's home by Cliff Richard. Daddy's ah! home by Cliff Richard. Okay, right, okay, okay. <laughs> okay, can we have clip number five then? A close encounter with a hard-hearted man with a gate at the YD God. Well, that's mental resentment, right? It is, yeah. It's English. Give me a music, please. Give me a music, please. I'm all about it. Does band names go mental as anything? They could be sued under the trade descriptions. Anyone know this one? I don't know, but I'm enjoying the song. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you the star then, and then you'll be all over it. Really? Ready? Paul Hogan. Oh, Crocodile Dundee. Yes. Oh, oh, Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> it is, Paul. Excellent. Oh, well, that's, uh, well, I'm afraid Rachel has uh, trounced you once again, Paul. But uh, to be fair, I needed clues on two of them. <laughs> <laughs> but, Rachel, you get the, the best of the A to C, do you? But, Paul, we like a twist here on Spoiler, and the twist on this particular episode is that I couldn't actually bear to inflict those songs on another music lover, so both of the mixtapes are exactly <laughs> the same. Yay! And everyone's a winner. Oh, right. Excellent. Right, we get Flag Day by the House Martins and life has come back round again. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Although I am going to take this set list. <laughs> okay, well, thank you both very much. Thank you to Johnny Through the Glass as well for all his hard work in producing Series 3. And uh, thanks now to the increasing number of listeners uh, we're getting. Tell your friends. I mean, you know, we don't don't worry about the donate button. We're, we're not in it for the money. A few jammy dodges here and there is fine. But what we would like you to do is if you've enjoyed it anywhere near as much as we've enjoyed doing it do tell your friends uh, that's the stuff that really works for us uh, okay and we will leave you now with the genial andy Goulding. don't try and judge someone's values until you've walked a mile in their shoes this mantra seems like the intention of writer director john hughes yet somewhere among the fine details of this would-be societal shake-up the message gets lost in a flurry of scenes about clothes hair and makeup when personal passion gets lumped in with fashion, erasing the aspect of choice, it becomes just a fad like fondue, ask your dad, that'll squeeze out your own unique voice. When Judd Nelson raises his fist to the sky to highlight the moral's enormity, he should be proclaiming diversity's joys, not striking a blow for conformity. To summarise in metaphorical terms, like an arrogant novice psychologist, don't claim to endorse the variety pack if you're really a cornflake apologist. <laughs> been listening to spoiler hosted by me paul tyler with andy goulding and rachel burnett our theme music was composed by ron butcher and i played synth on it with additional music from the breakfast club original soundtrack enjoyed the show and would like to support us you can go to our website spoilerpodcast.co.uk click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth you can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the audible trial banner on the left hand side or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us sharing the links to our show or writing a nice review on itunes
spoiler team are taking a short break now, but we'll be back soon with Series 4 when, amongst other things, we'll be taking a look at the 1987 British black comedy with Nail and I. I demand to have some booze! In the meantime, you can email us at hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. Just because you live in here doesn't give you the right to be a pain in the ass, so knock it off! Andy, the makeover of Ali Sheedy. (laughs) 